1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we've got a treat for you. It's a conversation with Dr. Diva Amon. That's right.
1: This is a wonderful chat where we're going to talk about, uh, about deep sea exploration. What is it like to explore the deep ocean from someone who's been there? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what sorts of uh, organisms and ecosystems are we learning about? How much do we not know about the deep ocean? And what are some of the biggest threats facing the deep ocean?
0: Yeah. Uh, so th- this was a fascinating conversation. Obviously, if you you want a little bit of background we've done some up episodes about the deep sea in the past we'll link to a few of those on the landing page for this episode i think we've done quite a few within just the past 6 months or so we've had deep sea on the brain
1: yeah but the short version is that the the ocean is deep uh <laughs> it is so deep that the pressure uh, down there is intense uh, the darkness is absolute And yet, even in and it's cold, and it's cold, and even but even in these uh, this environment that is so hostile to human life, uh, there is a great abundance of marine life to be found there,
0: and gorgeously strange and diverse habitats and ecosystems arise. That's right. So, without further ado, let's jump into the interview. All right, Diva, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
3: So my name is Dr. Diva Eamon. I'm a deep sea biologist who's originally from Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean, but I'm currently based at the Natural History Museum in London in England.
0: And what do you do there?
3: Um, well, it really varies day to day, um, quite a lot. So probably the best part of my job is actually going out to sea on what we call research cruises. They're nothing like the cruises that most people think about. (laughs) Um, (laughs) they don't involve, you know, elderly individuals or all you can eat buffets. Definitely not. Um, and yeah, that, most of what I do centers around that fieldwork, which can be for about, you know, one to three months of a year, um, usually broken up into four to five week periods. And when we're on that ship, we basically explore parts of the deep sea that most people haven't ever been to, that sometimes no one has ever been to. And we collect samples of um animals of uh, the geology the rocks and so on water samples and that allows us to get a better understanding for that area of the ocean and then once the ex- the research crew sorry, is done we bring everything back to the lab and there we work on those samples for usually the remainder of the year and that involves doing depending on what questions we're asking a variety of analyses and then I also do a lot of science communication because I think it's super fun and super important. And um, that's not just to the public, but also to policymakers to try and make sure our oceans are managed in a more man- in a more um, sustainable and effective way. Yeah, it's great. I love what I do.
0: Oh, it sounds amazing. So you, you talked about how science communication is a part of your job. If you could isolate, you know, like one thing that you really wish everyone uh could understand about the oceans or or the deep sea that uh that not enough people have grasped, what what do you think that message is?
3: Oh wow. Um perhaps the ooh, let me think about this one.
0: Didn't mean to put you on the spot.
3: <laughs> no, no, no. It's great. <laughs> it's a great question. Um I think it would probably be two things. The unknown nature, you know, most people never even think about the deep ocean. It's completely out of sight, out of mind. And that unfortunately has a lot of implications for um, its management and how we treat it. Um, And while it may seem very out of sight and out of mind, it actually is not out of our grasp. Um, On every research cruise that we go on, We see our impacts in the deep sea. And so it would probably be to, you know, hammer home that even though it's this place that most people will never go to, that most people will um, never get the opportunity to experience, you know, we're still having a very, very real impact in this place that also is, is really, really important to us being here on the planet.
0: And do changes in the deep ocean and the deep sea, do do we see those uh, having consequences that cascade out to, you know, parts of ecology in the world that we do interact with more?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So again, not a lot of people realize that, you know, everything is connected. And the deep ocean is the largest ecosystem on the planet. You know, it occupies about 60% of the planet's surface and provides over 96% of all the habitable space on Earth. And so, I mean, this is really a huge area. And because of that huge size, it has a really, really big responsibility. It plays a role in these global processes that really regulate our planet. So things like um, regulating temperature, Um, it absorbs the majority. I think it's absorbed about 96 percent of heat from our atmosphere so far as well as a 20 something percent i don't know the exact figure off hand of carbon dioxide emissions and so you know regulating the world's climate which we all know is getting more and more important it also cycles nutrients it also detoxifies the shallow parts of our planet um, and it provides us with you know a range of resources which a lot of people don't actually realize as well things like food things like oil and gas in the future, potentially medicine, potentially metals. And there is, of course, this like really inherent cultural value as well. You know, we see deep ocean in so many movies and so many books, and that, that ability to inspire is really something that we shouldn't underestimate at all.
1: So uh, can you tell us just a little bit about growing up in the Caribbean and how, uh, you know, how that may have inspired your interest in marine bi- biology, but then also how you ended up focusing on the deep?
3: Sure, without trying, I'll probably sound quite cheesy. Um, so I grew up in the Caribbean on the island on the islands of Trinan Tobago, and I mean, about 30 years ago, there wasn't that much to do, um, there back then, and so it meant that I spent a lot of time outside, um, in the garden, on the beach, um, in the ocean, and it just gradually led to this real passion, um, for the ocean and for the things that live there. And there were a lot of things that I really didn't understand or didn't know about the sea and what lived in it. And that really sort of propelled me to um, decide to study at university um, marine science. And funnily enough, I actually wanted to do medicine. Um, and my parents were like, no, no, no. Um, why don't you do something that you think you, you know, really will absolutely love, which, again, I'm very, very grateful for. Um, and, yeah, I decided to go and study marine biology. And... As I said, most people don't think about the deep sea. When I went to do my undergraduate degree, I you know, knew very little apart from perhaps like one or two animal books where there were pictures of hatchet fish and, you know, giant squid and other things. But it just really wasn't, it just didn't play a big role despite having grown up by the ocean. And um, it wasn't until my final year, really, that everything sort of fell into place where I took a deep sea biology course. And the lecturer was saying that, you know, over 99% of our deep ocean hasn't yet been explored. And by explored, I mean, visualized, like it hasn't been seen with human eyes, or it hasn't been seen with a camera that takes photos or images. And that just is such a staggering figure, considering we're talking about our own planet. It really hit home that, you know, you to to be to be working in deep sea science you get the opportunity to be a real life explorer and i think as children everybody goes through a period of wanting to do that and yeah as i said earlier i just absolutely love what i do and and that's when i decided hey i'm going to give this a shot and since then no regrets
0: do you think uh, <clears throat> you could sort of place our current understanding of deep sea ecosystems in a little bit of historical context, like wh- where do we come from and where are we today in our understanding of these ecosystems?
3: So while it may sound abysmal, I mean, over 99% of the deep ocean never having been explored, um, it is better than it's ever been, right? Um, our knowledge has increased to a point in history um, where we are able to make better decisions than we ever have been. Um, But it's still really this sort of drop in the bucket. You know, true deep sea exploration started, I think, in the sort of 1800s. Um, One of the biggest, one of the most important expeditions um, was the Challenger expedition. And that went around the world, really making the first concerted effort to, to sample as much as they could in the deep sea. But of course, back then it was mostly, you know, a troll you throw off the back of the boat and just sort of drag up whatever you can Whereas now, where the equipment that's being used is so high tech and as a result expensive, which of course is a very very big limitation, but it means that yeah, as I said, our knowledge is increasing. We're we're able to explore these places that no one has ever been in incredibly um, fine detail and answer questions which um, have plagued us for you know centuries Um, and unfortunately still while that is great and exciting we still have a huge way to go in order to be able to truly you know understand our planet as best we can
1: now when uh, when one goes to your website uh, divaaman.com oh, no. <laughs> um, it, it, <laughs> which
3: needs to be redone. <laughs>
1: Uh, you, you know, you get a snapshot of all these different uh, expeditions that, uh, uh, that you've been a part of. Uh, but can you uh, explain to our listeners, like, what, what are the tools of exploration that are generally involved in one of these expeditions?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, the first one is you need a ship, not a boat, a ship. Because usually you're going pretty far away from land and you're going out there for weeks. And you're never going to see, a lot of the time, you never see land during that period. Um, and so it means your ship has to have everything you could possibly need on it. You know, all the food provisions that you would need for that time, people to cook it, people to drive it, people to operate all the equipment, science. And um, yeah, usually it's about 50 people or so on one of these ships. And that's sort of the the platform, right? That then everything else operates off of. And so now, yes, we still use those more rudimentary pieces of equipment like trawls, which you throw off back ships, see what it gets. It's not necessarily the best piece of equipment to use. But the but now there's also, you know, other things like grabs you can lower down um, pieces of equipment like grabs and cores that bring up you know, perfectly preserved areas of the sleeve floor like one meter by one meter squared so that you can really get some good quantitative um, numbers. But then, I mean, but then you've got the really exciting equipment. And I know a lot of deep sea scientists listening to this will, <laughs> will curse me for saying that. But I mean, the things that get me excited, um, because I work on usually the really big animals, so animals you can see in images and animals you can see in videos, And to do that, we tend to use what I think is is a lot of the sexy stuff. So that'll be things like um, remotely operated vehicles, which can be about the size of a car. And they're basically our eyes and our ears on the seafloor and our hands on the seafloor. They are attached to the ship by a tether and they are able to go down. I think the deepest currently for an ROV is 6,500 meters i um, not sure whether that is in feet or miles. And, um, and they go down there with lights, with baskets to put samples, with cameras, um, with a range of sensors on them. And they essentially do our dirty work for us because we can't actually just, you know, scuba dive down there given the extreme conditions. But then there are also things like um, autonomous underwater vehicles or AUVs, which are not attached to the ship. They can be programmed to, for instance run a grid of um, imaging. So take, take snapshots in a in a really detailed grid, and they'll go off and do it. And then when they're finished, they'll pop back to the surface, and we go by and we pick them up. And they can do that for days, if not weeks sometimes. So again, the technology is just has increased to this incredible level. But of course, you know, the creme de la creme is really the um, submersibles. And that's, you know, one of most people's favorites, because you actually get to go down in those. Um, Usually they hold between two and three people and they are very small and uncomfortable, but they are your chariot down into this world that few people get to go to. And um, yeah, it's just a, completely wild experience and those also are not attached to the ship and they'll have like the rovs a range of equipment on them sensors baskets to put samples video cameras and images but there you get the added advantage of having or disadvantage whichever way you want to look at it, of having humans down there to actually you know make first-hand observations
0: I, i was just thinking about the role of Uh, visual identification in in the kind of work you do. I mean, what's it... uh, Could you talk a little bit about what, you know, that necessity of uh, looking at this strange world and being able to understand what you're looking at sometimes from maybe poor visual data?
3: Yeah, so that's a big thing. And actually, that has a lot... It's a really big issue now because, of course, our technology is increasing in leaps and bounds. And it means that often because of those changes in, um, for instance, photo resolution, you know, a lot of imagery isn't actually comparable on a scientific or statistical level anymore. So that, of course, has its own problems. Um, But with that said, you know, it, it really is. The level of equipment now and that level of imagery is really giving us a, a completely new way of looking at these environments. Like right now you can do, for instance, 3D mosaicing of hydrothermal vents so that you can zoom in because it's such high resolution and see, you know, individual centimeter sized animals on this absolutely massive structure. Um, and it's just, yeah, revolutionizing the way that that we understand the deep ocean. What was the question again?
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, maybe it wasn't a good question. I sort of well,
3: like went off on a tangent and then I was like, wait, what am I supposed
0: <laughs> to answer? <laughs> well, actually, I, I, I'm more interested in that. You just mentioned uh, being able to image hydrothermal vents. And I'm wondering if maybe you could sort of paint a picture for us of some of these major types of uh, undersea ecosystems and habitats. Uh, okay,
3: wait, before we get onto that, can I put in one more point for the other question? Oh, that I absolutely. Sorry. Um, so I was going to say that, you know, while imagery is great for deep sea biologists, if you want to really characterize an animal and fully understand, you know, if it's new, um, for instance, or, or really what it is, you unfortunately images will only take you so far. It's really important that you get a sample. Hmm. Um, if you're unable to you know, identify a new species, um, give it a name, go through that process without having something in hand. And that's because there are lots of animals that look very similar um, superficially from the outside. But actually, you need to have either really, really fine detail of like how many hairs there are on the fourth leg of this crab, for instance, (laughs) or that their DNA, they can look identical to us, but their DNA is actually really, really different. So it, images really do only take you so far. And they're just sort of one piece of that puzzle of understanding the deep ocean, I guess. Sorry, we can do the other question now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's
0: great. Uh, yeah, uh, so, yeah, we were asking about uh, hydrothermal vents and other deep sea habitats. Like, oh, can, can you sort of describe these and, and talk about the different roles these habitats play?
3: when most people think of the deep ocean they just tend to think of this you know abyss it's dark it's cold and everywhere on the planet and actually that's really really far from the truth just like on land there are a variety of habitats in our deep seas there are mountains there are plains there are trenches there are fields of corals and sponges, there are um, even lakes at the bottom of the of the deep ocean. I mean, it is just essentially like being on land where you just get a huge range. Um, and that means that you know, with each of those habitats, you get a com- not a completely different, but usually a very different fauna. So different communities live there. Um, and that leads to the deep ocean having really, really high diversity. Um, which yeah, not a lot of people realize. Um, and some of my, I mean, they're all amazing and so many of them are so visually stunning. Um, but I, of course, I guess I have favorites, I'm biased. Um, and so those will be things, actually, I don't know. They're all amazing. (laughs) Actually, I'll take that back. I don't have favorites. They're all, actually they're all great. (laughs) But, um, I mean, some of the ones that sort of jump out are uh, brine pools, because, I mean, who knew lakes at the bottom of the sea, Um, hydrothermal vents, which are these um, sort of underwater volcanoes that gush this superheated black fluid that looks like thick, thick, thick smoke and usually has huge amounts of life living around them. You get whale falls, so when a whale dies, yes, sometimes it washes ashore, but a lot of the time it will end up down in the deep sea where it will prompt this feeding bonanza um, on these seamounts. You tend to get, like, essentially the rainforests of the oceans. Um, they can have these sponge and coral gardens that act as trees almost, and they provide combs, like trees do in rainforests, for a huge variety of animals and some of these environments, you know, the animals are incredibly old. We're now beginning to understand in the deep sea. So for instance, uh, there have been corals in the deep ocean found to be well over 4,000 years old. So that's like, around the time the wheel was invented (laughs) 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 so there's one you know there's there's probably more than one but we know for sure there's a species of animal that can live for that long i mean that just blows my mind right um and yeah it just there's just huge variety and all of the animals down there are just so weird but so wonderful it just it's it's just fascinating
0: I know you couldn't pick a favorite habitat. Do do you have personal favorite deep-sea animals, the ones that just light you up the most?
3: I mean, so in terms of habitats, definitely brine pools are amazing. Um, Brine pools are three to eight times. It's where basically water, seawater that's three to eight times saltier than the surrounding seawater settles because of that density and um, essentially forms a lake on the sea floor. And interestingly, you get these... Uh, mussels and other animals forming like a seashore around that that very um, salty water that's sitting on the seafloor. So that's amazing. Um, hydrothermal vents are amazing. Whale uh, whalefalls are amazing. I mean, we covered the habitats already, but in terms of animals, oh gosh, again, such a hard question. A couple that come to mind, um, definitely the hoff crab. I mean, who doesn't love the hoff crab? It's a uh, white hairy. Um, blind crab that lives about two and a half kilometers down off Antarctica in the deep ocean at these hydrothermal vent environments, these underwater volcanoes. And what they do is because at hydrothermal vents, that fluid that they gush, that gushes out of them, is really, really rich in chemicals like methane and hydrogen sulfide. And those environments, those communities surrounding hydrothermal vents, will instead of using light, because there's no light in the deep sea, apart from bioluminescence, um, they will use these chemicals as their source of energy in a process, instead of photosynthesis, in a process called chemosynthesis. And that means that, you know, you end up with animals that are just so weird, and instead of having plants as the primary producers like we do on land and in shallow waters, we have um, bacteria that are the primary producers. And so there'll be these thick, bat- white bacterial mats growing all over these vents. But what is special about the hof crab is that it will actually have those bacteria growing on its body. So it has that that hairy chest, those hairy arms. Um, for the bacteria to grow on. And so what it will do is it will bathe itself in this warm chemical-rich fluid. The bacteria will then grow. And essentially then it will scrape all of the bacteria off of its chest and off of its arms and into its mouth. And it's like having its <laughs> a farm on its body. I mean, wow. that sounds or a grocery. That sounds great to me. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. you just <laughs> but um. Yeah, they' just they're just the most fabulous little animals and they we now know because of work by colleagues that they actually where they live on hydrothermal vents will be determined by their sex as well as what reproductive status they're in. So they've found that you know the biggest um, male Hoff crabs will move to the tops of the chimneys whereas the females who have eggs, Will move further away from the hottest parts of the chimney into more lukewarm water. I mean, it's just, it's just fascinating. But in case you didn't know, the real name is a Yeti crabs, because they look like the abominable snowman or Yeti. <laughs> but they've been nicknamed the Hoff Crab um, because they, because of that hairy chest aspect it, um, on the expedition, on the cruise. They were basically, someone drew an analogy between them and David Hasselhoff. And <laughs> yeah, so, uh, <laughs> And as far as I understand, he quite enjoys the idea. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a quirky one. But then, I mean, there's also um, an animal that I worked on. While it may not be, like, visually stunning, it just is, you know, a weird little thing um, called ostodax. It's a bone-eating worm. And so it lives only on the bones of dead animals in the deep sea, especially on um, the largest ones, so whales, for instance. And that is the only place they are found. And they have this sort of root structure that they use that secretes acid and allows them to dissolve the whale bone and allow them to bury down into it like a tree's roots do. And then they're able to get their food from those bones. And what is what is amazing about them, you know, there's just so many sex strategies in the deep sea that are so weird that they all the ones that were that you can see when you approach a whale fall on the deep sea floor um, actually are female. Um, But they have no one knew where the males were. It took ages for, for scientists to understand. But it turns out the males are tiny, tiny little blob like animals rather than this beautiful worm and they sit on the female's bodies in within their tube they have mucus tubes sometimes they sit within their mucus tubes and a female can have hundreds of them um and they're just there to provide her with sperm until they essentially run out and then they die and then she'll just replace them and again that sounds great to me but (laughs) (laughs) um so just yeah it's just this crazy world down there with all of these mad animals that it's like, you know, nature just went a bit crazy or rather evolution went a bit crazy. And I guess that makes sense given how extreme the conditions are down in the deep sea. You know, you really, the ev- evolution has really sort of taken a turn and it's just a, a great place for innovation.
0: Well, m- maybe they're the normal ones and we're the weird ones. <laughs> I mean,
3: exactly. And there are these thoughts that, you know, life did come from Um, the deep ocean, potentially from these hydrothermal vent environments. So exactly,
0: who knows? All right, we need to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more of our conversation.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. All right, we're back. We're going to jump right back into the interview.
0: So, you were just talking about these whale fall habitats, uh, the whale carcasses, and, and the bone worms. We've discussed a bit on the show before uh, some research about shipwrecks sometimes playing a similar role to whale car- carcasses at the bottom of the ocean. Do you have any experience with shipwrecks as deep sea habitats and any possible parallels there?
3: Yeah. So. It's such a great question, by the way. When I got the email, I was like, huh, interesting. Because the deep ocean is so food limited, there really is not a lot of food to go around in the deep sea. And that's because most of it comes from the sea surface um, in the form of dead plankton, um, both phyto and zooplankton. But then also you get fish and other things that drift down. And then, of course, you get these occasionally much larger packages of food like whales and wood. Um, so trees when they wash out to sea and so on. And they these the uh, organic falls, once they get to the deep sea because they're able to be broken down, they form this this huge source of food. And as most of us know, you know, a lot of ships are actually made of wood. Um, and so just like on land, how you have a variety of animals that will eat wood, break down wood, Um, It's the same thing in the deep sea. And so I know, when was it? In 2017, I was on an expedition um, in the Gulf of Mexico, exploring areas there. And we came across an 18th century vessel. And because it was wood, made of wood, but it actually had copper cladding along the front of it. And so you could see that all the wood, or a lot of the wood rather, not all of it, had been consumed and eaten away. And you can see the little boring holes by lots of animals. Um, But because of that wood, you actually get similar um, processes happening to those that happen at whale falls. So at whale falls, they will go through different stages in terms of animals eating them. And the second to last stage is where they essentially become chemosynthetic, so similar to the hydrothermal vents. They, Because of the degradation of all that food and organic matter, it results in a lot of the oxygen being removed from the water, and then a whole new set of life that can live without oxygen moves in and, resu- and uses these chemicals that are now being emitted from the wood and the seafloor. And that's exactly what happens at these at some of these shipwrecks. You get these, and because of that chemosynthesis, you get this thick bacterial mats, these white, thick bacterial mats and a very specific set of fauna moving in to make the most of that environment. But they essentially end up as this sort of um, hub of deep sea life, because while a lot of the deep sea may look barren, of course it's not. But compared to a lot of the deep sea, they end up with you know a huge abundance of animals, big diversity of species. And that's just the wood ones. I mean, then you also get the the ones that are made of less degradable materials like metal or fiberglass. And those are very similar to the final stage of whale falls. Um, So once all the nutrients has been removed from a whale fall, whether it's the flesh of the whale or the nutrients from the bones, the bones essentially just become a a structure, a physical structure on the seafloor, like a rock. And as a result, animals will move in that can sit, move them. So, for instance, a, a coral or a sea star will sit on top of the whale fall, on top of the bones, and that will allow them to project up into the away from the seafloor, where currents can be slower because of the friction, and it allows them to get much more food. And so, it really is, you know, pretty good to to for them to propel themselves off the seafloor. And that's the same thing that happens at a lot of shipwrecks. They provide this habitat because of that structure, because of that physical um, distance from the seafloor for a lot of animals to attach to so that they can get up into the water column and get more food, but also for a lot of animals to hide and shelter in. So they they really are interesting. And and another thing that a lot of people don't realize is, you know, some whale falls, it's thought, can last for over 100 years on the seafloor, and we know that shipwrecks also can last for a very, very long time on on the deep seafloor as well. So a lot of analogies there.
0: Interesting. So one thing I was uh, reading that you had written about was uh, about deep water exploration in the Mariana region. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I read where you mentioned that you can sometimes just come across these masses of strange organisms that nobody on the team can identify. Can can you talk some about that experience?
3: I mean, I it's not just in the Marianas region. It's just globally in the deep sea. Um, I'd say on nearly every research cruise that I've been on, that has happened. Um, and I, I'm sure other deep sea scientists would tell you the same. And that's just a nod to the how little exploration there's been. But it's just this really humbling feeling you know often as scientists a lot of people think that we have all the answers but really working in the deep ocean reminds us that we we don't Um, on every on every research cruise we go on we see new animals we see new habitats Um, and yeah i think not a lot of people realize that that's the case most people think that you know we know everything about our about our planet about our oceans but really we're very very far away from that Was that kind of where you were going with that question or were you trying to get something
0: else? No, of course that's true. Uh, I was wondering also, I mean, if there were any experiences that stood out to you about specific things you saw. You mentioned uh, in in the piece I was reading about just like strange white spheres and uh, like green wiry things. I think they didn't have names. Yeah,
3: That was – I mean – that okay so on every expedition yes we find animals we don't know exactly what species they are or maybe even what genus they are or maybe even what family they are in that taxonomic classification but yeah occasionally you get you get you see these things and you're like i don't even know whether that's alive or whether that's (laughs) a plant or because of course you don't really get plants in the deep sea because there's no light well you don't get plants in the deep sea unless they're dead um and so you just you, it, you know, you're like, how is, this, how is this happening? How can I not even understand the basic classification of this animal? And that happened quite a lot in the Mariana region, actually. Um, you're right. We saw these sort of green thread-like structures that were um, hanging off of, of deep-sea corals in the current. And so we thought that maybe maybe it was algae that had, you know, gotten further down to the deep sea and then was the current had blown it and then it had sort of snagged. But then the weirdest one definitely was were these spheres. They were only a couple, maybe a centimeter, a couple millimeters across, but there were thousands of them, just all on the sea floor. And we had on that expedition, because we were able to stream the dives live, it was on the Okeanos Explorer, the NOAA Ship Okeanos Explorer, and they stream all of their dives live. And it means that the public can watch, and it means that a lot of scientists who aren't able to be on the ship because of constraints of space but perhaps also they have other things going on they can watch and join in and communicate with us so it means we really have a much larger wealth of knowledge but again in that case you know we had dozens of scientists on the call with us on the dive with us and no one was able to see what those spheres were and we saw them several times during that expedition we tried to pick them up we tried to crush them with the rov manipulator the rov hands and it just we yeah we were we narrowed it down to about five things but we still don't know for sure and that was 3 years ago you know wow and that's just a really common occurrence in the deep sea yeah
1: so I, lo- I love the uh, you know, the sense of, of scientific wonder and discovery. Uh, you know, you're you're able to uh, relay about uh, the deep ocean, and and we're going to come we're going to come back to that uh, towards the end. But but I wanted to ask a few questions though uh, about about the threats that uh, the, the deep sea ecosystems are facing. What are the biggest threats to deep sea ecosystems today?
3: So. Biggest threat. Okay, there's a huge suite of things that are impacting the deep sea, um, but currently it's probably fishing. Um, there's actually a lot of deep ocean fishing, and a lot of it can be very, very destructive practices. So things like trawling, which essentially just clear cuts communities, nothing is left unscathed. And when, for instance, when the corals and sponges, those rainforests are, are broken and disturbed, then it means the habitat for lots of other animals is lost. And that happens in, in a lot of our world's deep oceans. But then there's also, you know, pollution. We're hearing a lot these days about plastic, but there's lots of other materials. I mean, people used to, even though it's illegal now, um, people used to purposefully dump into the deep sea because it was sort of this essentially bottomless pit, you know, it was once thought to be. And so there's been things like, pharmaceuticals, it's been dumped in the Puerto Rico trench and um, ammunition and uh, chemical weapons that have been dumped off of um, in the Pacific and off Hawaii and so on. Um, but that's changing. But of course, there's still a lot of stuff that gets into the deep sea, not on purpose, right, whether it is plastic that washes out to sea and rivers or something that blows off a ship. Um, and unfortunately, you know, it's It's a reality on every research cruise that I've been on. We've come across our trash on the deep sea floor from the Antarctic to the Mariana Trench. And I'm not sure if you've been watching the news, but there was someone who broke the record for the deepest dive um, in our world's oceans in the Mariana Trench uh, just this week. And when he got down there, you know, he found trash. And that really is a very sad reality but that's those, those pieces of trash are sort of the, the, part, the things that are easy to see and easy to understand. But there's also lots of impacts that we can't see. So things like chemical pollution. Some of the animals in the Mariana Trench and other um, parts of the deep ocean have been found to have incredibly high levels of really destructive chemicals in their bodies, things like PCBs and so on. And now plastics we're realizing break down into microplastics and those end up in the deep ocean and a lot of animals actually eat them and no one is really sure what effect that's having on them. And then, of course, we've got this huge umbrella over everything of climate change. It's happening globally. It is the biggest environmental crisis and one of the biggest crises in general to face our planet and the deep sea is no exception. Um, whether it is rising temperatures, whether it is um, ocean acidification because of that, or also deoxygenation, all of those things are happening in our deep oceans. And they're almost sort of we we think and there's you know research in the recent you know decade or so um, happening on this, and more and more happening on this that actually the impacts of climate change may be exacerbating some of the other impacts that are already happening, and so we're having these sort of cumulative impacts that we don't quite understand yet, and you know this lack of lack of understanding, that lack of science, is really a, a huge barrier to being able to deal with these impacts. Um, it really, really is a big problem.
0: I was actually. I don't know the answer to this. I, I wonder if you do. So how does, in, in previous uh, mass extinctions that have taken place on the Earth, uh, I know many ocean organisms are affected, but in the deep sea, do we think that the deep sea is usually more affected or less affected or about equally affected to other ecosystems when there's a mass, mass extinction?
3: Oh my God, this is a really hard question. I'll give you a very broad answer. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I'm not like, a hundred percent certain but there have been a range of extinction events that have happened on the planet and usually um while in our oceans you know a lot of the life in a lot of in most of the oceans deep and shallow have died um it is thought in some of them that you know that is where life remained and that is where life was able to recolonize from um, but that shouldn't really be, you know, shouldn't really give us any hope. If, <laughs> right. If, you know, we should be like, oh, they'll be fine down there. No, no, they won't. <laughs> um, so it really is about, you know, changing the way that we're sort of treating our planet. And especially as, you know, the technology is increasing, the demand is increasing for resources because of these increasing global populations, increasing standards of living, and that means that we're pushing deeper and deeper into our oceans to get these basic resources that we rely on. Fishing is a big one for food, but there's also things like, you know, deep sea mining is on the horizon um, for those metals that we need for our laptops, our cell phones, our renewable energy. Um, and then there's also um, things like marine genetic resources. So because the deep sea is this really extreme place, and animals have evolved so, so much down there, they thought that they they might have a lot of properties and compounds that might be really useful to us. Um, So, for instance, antibiotic resistance is going to be, again, one of the biggest challenges facing humanity. And so now there is a big push to look to the deep ocean for antibiotics and other types of medicine, for instance, that, you know, may be able to help combat that issue in the future. Um And so that's this is this is increasing. And we really do need to think about how we um, regulate our deep oceans, because a lot of them aren't very well regulated because they sit in international waters um, or areas beyond national jurisdiction is the term that people are using these days. And that means that, you know, they've been really loosely regulated and managed um, up to today. And that's changing, but slowly.
1: Now, in terms of of, of deep sea mining, uh, you mentioned how that is that's on the horizon. Uh, what can be done, and what is being done to 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 curb and prevent uh, destruction from from those uh, uh, enterprises?
3: So the the deep ocean is the clo- it, while it is not pristine, it's the closest ecosystem we have on the planet to one that is pristine, and. You know, historically, we haven't been a great species, for instance, on land and shallow waters. We exploited lots of environments without having a very good understanding of them. And so things went awry very quickly. Um, And we've been doing that for millennia, right, longer. Um, And, but with the deep sea, we have this real opportunity to understand what exists there prior to exploitation, so that we can essentially better value and better manage it Um, so there is science being done very slowly not quickly enough which is a problem but it is sort of ticking over and right now what there are two really big processes happening globally Um, one is at the united nations a process called the biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction negotiations Um, and that is essentially to try and put Laws and regulations in place to manage international waters because currently they're sort of this, um, they're called the common heritage of humankind. And that means that they belong to everyone on the planet. They belong to um, everyone that's yet to come on the planet. And as a result, they sort of belong to no one, right? So there's that catch 22. So now there's this process happening at the UN to manage the these areas and all of the life within them more responsibly. Um, And hopefully, you know, within the next two to three years that will be concluded with a really strong um, set of regulations so that we can really begin to step it up. Also happening is related to deep sea mining is again another process. It's deep sea mining, well, all mineral resources um, in the deep ocean is governed by a body called the International Seabed Authority. Um, and they are an intergovernmental body and they right now are going through a similar process as that of BBNG, where they are trying to put in place the regulations that will govern mining if it ever does begin. Um, and it's really important that those regulations be grounded in rigorous science, because again, that is really one of those key limiting factors here, our understanding, um, but, you know, it's a great start. And so the next five years to 10 years are going to be hugely important for our oceans and, and as a result, hugely important for our planet. Um, and we just kind of have to keep our hopes up and keep engaging and keep hoping that, um, you know, that really strong regulations emerge and, and as a result, everyone will be much, much better that but it remains to be seen
0: okay time to take a quick break but we'll be right back today's episode is brought to you by ebay ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease fresh installs and a whole lot of love you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own look to your left look to your right it's official And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name.
1: All right, we're back and we're going to jump right back into the
0: interview. On top of uh, urging for, you know, the right kind of large scale policies to fight climate change and to, you know, try to prevent the destruction of these habitats by industry. Is there is there anything really that that individual people can do to help or is this really something that just has to be addressed on the large scale?
3: Um, I mean, both. Definitely. Uh, The large scale process is so, so important um but i mean something that you know anyone can do is become responsible consumers you know i know people hear this all the time but ask where your fish is coming from ask how it was caught um you know in the mariana trench that plastic bag that ended up over 10 kilometers down there um someone had to take that from a grocery right so it's about you know really behaving responsibly um because everything on the planet is connected um, and all of our actions have an impact. And I think something else is is really, you know, educating yourself about the oceans, about what lives there, um, and then sort of educating others, because that's the way that we can really influence change in our communities. And that's where a lot of um, impetus can be placed on policymakers, right, without that that backing of the public, sometimes a lot of stuff doesn't get done. So really, it's just about that knowledge, increasing it.
0: Awesome. Uh, Robert, so we did have a few things from... From Robert's son's class, did we? Yeah, oh, yeah,
3: so cute. Yeah, so,
2: so, so,
1: yeah. It just happened that uh, my son's for one of his first grade classes. They're they're discussing. Uh, they're covering uh, uh, marine biology and discussing uh, uh, various ocean layers. So I reached it's out just to so them.
3: Great for first grade. I was like, wow, I wish my school was like that.
1: <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I reached out to him and I said, you know, we're 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 chatting with an expert uh, this week. Uh, maybe uh, the, the class has some questions they would like to to ask. So. So I'm going to ask them on their behalf here. These are actual questions from first graders uh, about uh, marine biology in the deep ocean. Uh, So the first one is, how do animals in the midnight zone handle the water pressure?
3: I mean, that's a super specific question. <laughs> I'm pretty sure when I was in first grade, I didn't know what the Midnight Zone was. I'm pretty sure up until like 10 years ago, I didn't know what the Midnight Zone was. <laughs> but um...
0: <laughs> no, I asked with the zeal of a child who just learned about the Midnight Zone. You've I, got to know.
3: Great. It's great. Um, but this this unfortunately isn't my area of expertise, but especially the Midnight Zone. But I'll give a more broad answer. Um, so many fish and, any, and lots of other animals that live in the deep ocean, one of the ways they handle that huge change in water pressure um, is that they don't have air pockets in their bodies. So if you think about us, we have our lungs and those that has air in it, right? And that is the reason that we, one of the reasons that we're unable to go into the deep sea because they, that air would essentially become really, really compressed and eventually we would just squish. Um, but a lot of animals get around that by just not having those air pockets um, and are largely composed of water. And so if you're essentially the same material as what you're living in, it means that the pressure when, you, when, that, when it changes can remain sort of balanced. But unfortunately, fun fact, a bit morbid, um, <laughs> when some fish in the deep ocean do have those air bladders in them, and when you, you know, when we're doing our science, if we were to collect one of them and then bring it to the surface, because of that change in pressure, when you're really deep down, um, every air is very compressed. But as you move shallower, it expands because of that difference in pressure. And a lot of those fish, because of that air pocket in them, the air will actually expand as they're coming to the sea surface. And sometimes they end up like exploding, or their stomach comes out of their mouth, or their eyes bug out. It's just generally not very pretty. Um, <laughs>
0: we we actually talked about this in an episode not too long ago. The the aversion of the stomach from was it a uh, rockfish? Yeah. I think when they get pulled up from deep pressure.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's, so, and, and not just rockfish, but you know any deep sea fish that have have these air pockets. Um, it just. I can imagine it's not a very nice experience for them to go through. No. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, here's another first grade question. How do animals without sight find food in the ocean?
3: And that's a great question because in the deep sea, there's no light. Once you go past about 400 meters depth, the sun cannot get down there. And so that means that a lot of animals, either if they do have eyes, they can't see very well, Um, or they just flat out don't have eyes, right? So it's really, really important in the deep ocean that they have another way to find their food. Um, So there's two main ways. One is that they can use, they have chemical sensors. So just like how when your mom is making your favorite meal and you're in your bedroom and you can smell it wafting up the stairs, um, animals can do the same. They can detect these chemicals in the water and then because of currents bringing that chemical, those chemicals to them, just like how the wind would bring us the scent of the food, they can follow that to wherever that, that parcel of food may be. And the other way is they can have, this is a big word, mechanosensory cues. So what that means is that they will have, for instance, um, structures along their body like uh, little lateral lines or little hairs that make them extra sensitive for picking up vibrations in the water. So it's like how if you were to go outside and you were to feel a breeze on your arm, animals can do that, but deep sea animals can do that, but on a much greater scale. So if there was, for instance, a a dying fish down in the deep sea that was sort of flapping about, making lots of movement, um, or something like a dead whale had just drifted down to deep sea and then hit the sea floor with a big thump, animals would be able to pick up those vibrations and then again follow them to find their next meal which is pretty cool
1: awesome well um uh, they have, the first graders ask a few more questions but uh, you've you've uh, you've hit on most of the answers already, but but I will close. One of their questions was, "What's the most interesting thing you've seen in the ocean?" You've already shared a number of different, um, you know, fascinating uh, uh, examples of ecosystems and organisms. But I wonder if there's if there's there's one more uh, ecosystem or organism that you would like to highlight uh, before we close out, or or
0: something anomalous. Yeah.
3: Oh oh this is so hard <laughs> it's just it's so hard because you know on every single research we go on we see amazing things right that's just not an exaggeration um oh oh oh, oh. um perhaps i mean i've had a, n- a number of really memorable experiences um so a couple that are jumping to mind are. Um, when we were exploring the deep sea in the Antarctic, um, I remember my first morning on the ship. This isn't necessarily in the ocean in the deep sea, but I remember my first morning on the ship, I was brushing my teeth, looking out the window, um, just at the amazing, you know, we couldn't see any land or any icebergs, but I was just looking at the view, and all of a sudden there was a splish-splash right by the window. I was like, what was that? And then it was just this huge flock of chinstrap penguins just you know sort of swam by <laughs> and that was just I mean I'll never forget that that, that was just an incredible um experience and of course then I stopped brushing my teeth and ran outside with my camera and stayed out there for like four hours but um, <laughs> but um apart from that um something anomalous would be uh it was it was actually a bit sad um again in the Gulf of Mexico in 2017 uh we were going to be exploring what we thought was a shipwreck Um, we had found a shipwreck a couple days earlier that no one had been to since it had been on the seafloor had had, no one was there and we were really excited because we were hoping to do that again Um, and you know, we had bets going on board for how old it would be, what kind of vessel it would be, what would be living on it. Um, everyone was really, really excited. And because it really is exploration in like the truest sense. Right. Um, but when we got to it, it turned out it wasn't a ship at all. It, in fact, was a shipping container that had obviously fallen off a ship in a storm or something and had exploded on the seafloor. And as a result, we found the ROV driving through this field of fridges, washing machines, dryers, chest freezers, dishwashers. Like it was just the most surreal experience because you're like two kilometers down in an area of the Gulf of Mexico. No one has ever been before. And yet still... Here is all of our trash just sitting on the sea floor, you know, like common, common goods that we all have in our home. And then there are all these weird deep sea animals like living on them or swimming around them. And you're like, what is going on? I don't understand. Um, and then apart from that, um, I mean, one of some of my favorites, it never gets old, uh, seeing, uh, octopus. In the deep sea, especially oh, yeah. Dumbo octopus that have <laughs> the flaps on the side of their heads. I mean, they're just so adorable. Um, and also, deep sea sharks are super cool. Um, and usually we see a couple of those on, on a lot of expeditions. On We were off Brazil about, was it, two, yeah, two years ago. And um, we were diving in submersibles, which, of course, is always so much fun. Um, and remind me to tell you something funny after. Uh, and we... Yeah, on every single dive, we were off Brazil, off these rocks called St. Paul's and St. Peter's Rocks, which are smack in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, off Brazil. And we, on every expedition, on every, sorry, dive in the submersible, we, I guess they were attracted by the, by, by the vibrations, the noise, the lights, I don't know. But, but on every single dive, we were joined by huge six-gill sharks. And those are sharks that predominantly stay in the deep ocean and can get to really, really big sizes. And so that was super exciting to be able to see those, you know, in their in their habitat. And then I'll end, I guess, with like a funny fact for for all the kids is that, you know, you're when you go down in the submersible, it's the most crazy experience. And I'm sure in your lifetimes, people will be able to do that when they go on holiday. Right. Um, but things that people don't really think about are that there's no toilet on submersibles. In fact, like it's so small that, you know, you're usually touching the two other people that you're in there with and you may not know them very well. Right. So it's just uh, something to ponder when sometimes you're in there for like nine hours, what do you do? Right. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. That's, there's a kind of my, my, yeah. So you
0: pose the question, but you don't answer it. (laughs) I mean,
3: (laughs) (laughs) I can answer it, but yeah, I just figured we'd leave it up to them to think about it.
0: Well, uh, Diva, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: My absolute pleasure. This has been really, really fun.
0: All right. So there you
1: have it. Uh, Thanks again uh, to Dr. Diva Amon for coming on the show, chatting with us. Uh, Again, if you want to check out more about her work, uh, you can check out her website. This is a a great first stop. Uh, It's DivaAmon.com. That's D-I-V-A-A-M-O-N. Uh, She's also on social media. We're going to make sure that uh, uh, our accounts are are linking to hers on the various social platforms where we're sharing this
0: episode. That's right. So, huge thanks as always, of course, to Dr. Diva Amon for joining us today, but also to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback on this episode, uh, to suggest a topic for the future, to suggest a guest for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your
2: stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio's radio's how stuff works for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, radio visit the iHeartRadio radio app apple podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows